The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20. And our journey through Matthew brings us now closer and closer to the purpose of the entire canon of Scripture. Uh, The Bible was written to tell us the wonderful story of redemption and to reveal to us the God-man, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save us from our sins. Matthew begins with the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. It ends with his death and his resurrection and then his ascent back to heaven. And so in the first words, the very first words that Jesus spoke in Scripture, he knew that his destiny was determined. He knew exactly what he was here for. Usually we would say that people are born to live, but that's not true in the case of Jesus Christ, and that's because he was already alive. He didn't come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem. He was already alive. In fact, he is the giver of life. He was a spirit who became man and came here and made it, uh, becoming a man, made it possible for him to die for our sins, to give his life for us that we might be saved. Now, the Bible teaches us this, and in these scriptures, the Lord Jesus gives his third, his third prophetic announcement about his coming death. And that's what I want to explore with you for a few minutes this morning in these scriptures. Matthew chapter 20, if you'd stand with me, please. We're going to read verses 17, 18, and 19. Matthew chapter 20, verse number 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed under the chief priest and under the scribes, And they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. Father, thank you for your word and these great truths that we find in Scripture. May our hearts be opened up to see Christ crucified today, to see the death of the Savior, and then also his wondrous resurrection to life. And because of that life, we also can live. Open up our hearts to your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In the first part of this chapter, Jesus gave his disciples a parable about laborers in the vineyard. Now, this was a long illustration of what he, uh, the statement that he made at the end of chapter 30, in which he said, Matthew 19, verse 30, but many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And that was a saying about the greatness of the kingdom of God and how it mean, what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And we've seen time after time how that, that issue was always on the disciples' minds. In fact, after we get through with these three verses that we're studying today, we'll find ourselves right in that controversy or back into the middle of that controversy once again in verses 20 through 28. And we'll also find that the disciples had to be straightened out on this issue once again. What does it really mean to be great in God's kingdom and how can that greatness be achieved? Well, Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And he taught that because that means there must be humility in Christ's kingdom. 
that God is sovereign, that God is the one who makes the choice. And before we're ever ready to reign with Christ, we first of all must become his servants. We must become a servant as he would serve a servant and became obedient to the death of the cross. Now, before we can rule with Christ, we must suffer as he suffered. We must bear the reproach of his cross. We must be willing, as he said, to take up our cross and to follow him. And as we've just sung in the song a moment ago, to live our lives every day after the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is the third time that Jesus told his disciples about his death for sinners But that didn't seem to register with them. It was incongruent with the way that they thought that the kingdom would come to this earth. Now, I want you to notice how that Jesus broke this old news to them. As I said, it's the third time that he's talked to them about this. But he broke this old news to them as they were headed to Jerusalem. And going to Jerusalem was really an issue for the disciples. There's a parallel passage in the book of Mark that says that when Jesus told them this, that they were amazed that he was going, and they were afraid because he was going. They couldn't understand Jesus' intent in going to Jerusalem when there was such hostility against him, when they knew that the chief priests and the scribes and the people were, many of the people were against him, the religious leaders were against him. And so they looked at Jerusalem, a trip there, as being something that would end their very short careers as potential leaders in this kingdom that would come. And so they were amazed that he would go, especially with all the predictions about his death. It seems much better that Jesus would remain in Galilee. There he could have a productive ministry, keep on like he's going, perhaps to live a very long life. And they were afraid because they didn't understand exactly what did the death of Jesus mean. And they somehow had missed the part about the resurrection But we still have to commend them for this, that in their fear, they were still willing to go with Jesus to Jerusalem. In the Gospel of John, it tells us there that Thomas, who we often refer to as being the doubter, the one that doubted that Jesus had arisen from the dead, it was Thomas who was the first to say, if he's going to Jerusalem, I'll go with him. And if he's going to die, I will die with him. And that was all well and good until they got there, and then when Jesus was taken, the courage melted away, and every one of them fled from him. All the disciples departed from him, and Jesus was left to face the suffering and death of the cross alone. And doesn't that tell you it is much, much easier for us to stand around and talk about what we're going to do for Jesus, and talk about how brave we are for Jesus, how we'll stand up for Jesus, But it's a totally different story when you have to actually pick up your things and go with him. And it just reminds us of how we are in our service to Christ, that we can all get charged up and excited about what Jesus is doing in the world and uh, about Christianity and about what we can do for Christ. We get all charged up and excited when we're sitting here in the room today and we're listening to the gospel of Christ or the good news and all the different things that we talk about. But as soon as we walk out that door, it's a different story. When we face a world that's hostile to Christ, it is a different story. And this is what Jesus experienced with his own disciples. Now, as we looked at this previously, um, looked at the 20th chapter and the 19th chapter, 
we know that there are crowds that followed Jesus everywhere he went. And there were always the crowds that were there. Many people came to be healed. They loved what Jesus could do for him. And it was really great to follow Jesus around as long as there wasn't any trouble. Now here we see that Jesus took his disciples apart from the crowd. He separated them in order to talk to them about his death. Now that was a very important thing for him to do. Uh, He, of course, had a very close relationship to his disciples. They understood better, even though they didn't understand well, they did understand better what he was there to do, certainly better than the crowd could understand. So Jesus separated his disciples out because as he talked to them, he didn't want the people to hear about his death because you have so many people there that are weak in the faith, and if they hear that Jesus is about to die, that would just completely shatter what little faith that they had. And then there were other people in the crowd that were like Simon Zelotes. You remember him? He's the disciple that was chosen by Jesus, and he was what we would call a terrorist, a former terrorist. He was one of those that was interested in overthrowing the Roman government. And, of course, Jesus saved him, but there were many that were like him in the crowd. They'd hitched their star, or they hitched their wagon, I should say, to Jesus. They'd hitched it to him in hopes that he would be the one that would overcome Rome and restore the throne of David. Now, Jesus didn't want them to to hear about this because if they heard that he was going to die, then when he got to Jerusalem, then they might try to do something about it. There might be a riot. There might be an uproar that would stop the resurrection of Jesus or at least throw a serious hindrance in the way. And Jesus did not want that because it wasn't the time for his kingdom to come. It wasn't his time to establish a throne. And he was determined that what he was going to do, he was going to Jerusalem to die. And he was not going to let anything interfere with that plan. You know, that is really something when you think about how the world looks at it, and how religion today looks at the death of Jesus Christ. You know how they look at it? Usually they don't look at it at all because they don't really think about the sacrifice and what Christ did. The modern church is telling us all the time about self-image and self-improvement, about a development that's geared towards self-empowerment, and that is exactly the misunderstanding that the disciples had that Jesus did not come to empower people in that way. Building up self, building wealth as modern preachers promise people, that is directly opposed to the death of the cross. Jesus did not come to empower his people that way, but he came for servanthood, he came for humility, he came in meekness, he came to take a back seat for the good of others. That is the way of the cross. It has nothing to do with what we do for ourselves. It's always the way of the cross to have others on our minds and to think of Christ and what he wants for us. Well, I want to take a few minutes today to look at what Jesus told the disciples in these few verses. Again, it's a private conversation, and let's look at what he told them. First of all, he said, The Son of Man shall be betrayed. Now, betrayal, that, that should have immediately clued them into something. You're not betrayed by your enemies. Your enemies are already against you. You don't have to be betrayed by them. You're betrayed by somebody who is supposed to be on your side, somebody who is a friend. Now, in this passage, Jesus didn't say who it was that would betray him. In fact, in no time did Jesus actually name the person, although 
he did give several indications of who it might be. And this betrayal of Christ is part of that long-standing prophecy that we find in the Old Testament. In fact, the psalmist, uh, and this is one of the psalms that we'll read a little bit later on, Psalm chapter 41, verse 9, it says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, and whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Jesus said, the one who eats of my bread, that's the one that will betray me. The friend who sits with me and puts his feet underneath my table, he's the one that will betray me. Now, this is one that he was familiar with, one that he could look into the eye, and one who would look him in the eye and deceitfully say, Lord, is it I? And that's what Judas did. He sat down with Jesus at the Last Supper And Jesus said, the one who dips his bread with me in the dish, this is the one who will betray me. But have you noticed in that passage that Jesus still did not name Judas? If he had, wouldn't the other disciples have grabbed him? Wouldn't they have thrown him out? Well, Jesus didn't want to name him because Judas had his part to play in this. Judas had to go out and do his work. He had to betray him. And Jesus was not going to let even the smallest detail of what Scripture said and what was in the Father's plan, he wasn't going to let any of that get out of place. And so he didn't name Judas. He never told the disciples, no, you're all wrong about this. Judas is the one who's going to do it. No, he never said that. In fact, They were so confused about it, it was so secretive that none of the disciples even suspected it was Judas. They trusted him. They gave him the bag. In other words, he was the treasurer that took care of their money. They trusted him. And they never said, you know, that scoundrel Judas, we know that he's got to be the one. He acts like that all the time. He doesn't act like he's a real follower of you. No, they they never suspected him. In fact, each of the disciples thought that somehow they might have a change of mind and they might be the one that would betray Jesus. So they kept asking, is it I? Peter said, will I do it? John said, am I the one? Matthew said, please tell me it's not me. And even right down to Judas, every one of them, they looked at Jesus and Jesus looked at them and all of them asked the same question, Judas as well, Lord, is it I? Well, it was the false professor that would do it. And you know there are always false professors among the true. Sitting right in our church this morning, there may be someone who has betrayed Jesus. We don't suspect you because you are sitting here right with us and you act just like us. But when you leave this auditorium and you go out and you live your life out there, You are guilty of betraying Jesus. You're guilty because of the way that you live. You're guilty because the good name of Jesus Christ suffers, because the membership of this church suffers because of the testimony that you are. You are a betrayer of Jesus Christ because you cause others to mock him. Well, Jesus was betrayed, and sadly that same betrayal is going on by those who are like Judas. They are pretenders, and the name of Christ is blaspheme. They claim to be friends of Jesus, but they're actually enemies of the cross. And so people will come in here, and they'll sit at this table, and they'll listen to the Lord's word being taught. They'll sit at the feast of God's word, 
and turn right around and go out and betray the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he told them first. He said, I'm going to be betrayed, and it will be by someone who is a friend. Next, he told them that he would be condemned. Jesus said that he would be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests, and they would condemn him. And that's an indication that there will be a trial. Condemnation means judgment. And at first we would think that a trial is exactly what is needed here. An innocent man certainly doesn't fear justice. I mean, there were so many people that were witnesses of the good deeds of Jesus that surely a trial couldn't do anything but help him. I mean, how many people could testify to the great things that he had done? And so he could clear up any misconceptions that anyone had about him. But this prediction of a trial was one that only the omniscient God could know. That Jesus would stand trial in the highest court that the Jews could assemble, that he would stand before the highest religious leaders of his day, and that doesn't seem like too much of a problem, especially for a religion that's steeped in good works. Aren't these the ones that are so interested in keeping the Ten Commandments? I mean, it's all about the law to them. So to be to be tried by the highest officials of the land, those who believe in good works, that, that's not going to be a problem, is it? I mean, these are people of justice and integrity. That's not going to be a problem to be in a trial like that. The chief priests were the upper echelon of the priesthood. I mean, it started out at the lowest level with the Levites who were, you know, did the ordinary mundane things in the temple worship. And then it moved up to those priests that had duties in the daily ministration of the temple. Then further than that, to those that had things that they did in the weekly administration and oversaw that. Then it got all the way up to the high priest, who is really what he is supposed to be is an example of Jesus Christ. He is the high priest of the people, the pinnacle of the religious order. So Jesus then would stand before the supreme court of the Jews where honesty and integrity must surely prevail. I mean, who can you trust if you can't trust the highest court in the land? Who can't you trust? Or who can, who, if you can't trust the Pope in, in white satin and the cardinals in the red, then who can you trust? Surely they're not going to be guilty of any kind of scandal, are they? And we might well ask the same question of our Supreme Court. Where are you going to get justice if not at the Supreme Court? But in our land, there is no justice when it comes to God. God, who is justice, never gets justice at the hands of men. You look what our courts have done. They've struck down God's law in favor of all kinds of salacious, disgusting perversions. The Ten Commandments are not allowed in our courthouse. And yet, the vile and the most wicked of all are welcomed into our courts with, welcome, with open arms. So Jesus stood before the highest court. The high priest was there. The best of the scribes were there. And that's important too, you know, the scribes. The scribes are the lawyers. The scribes are the lawyers. And there were the best of the lawyers that were there at this trial. I mean, these are the ones that are most learned in the ins and the outs of Jewish law. And goodness knows, it took experts to unscramble the mess that they'd made of the Torah. I mean, just like when you go to, go to a uh, court here in our country, you dare not go on a legal matter unless you have an attorney with you. I mean, our law has so many ins and outs, you wouldn't dare go to a court without having a lawyer with you. It was the same thing then. Uh, the 
system was so burdened down with codes and exemptions and exclusions and fine print and clauses that you dare not go without a lawyer. So the scribes were there, and then the best of them, the F. Lee Baileys and the Johnny Cochrans and Theodore Olsons and David Boys and all of them, they were there. So justice can be served. But there was no justice, and Jesus accurately predicted the outcome of the trial. He said, I'm going to be judged, there will be a trial, and I will be condemned. And sure enough, that trial commenced and the witnesses were called in, Only there weren't any witnesses for Jesus. The only witnesses there were for the prosecution. And none of those witnesses could agree. A Jewish law said that there had to be a consistent testimony. There has to be consistency of two or more witnesses to testify against someone to condemn them. But they were so confounded that nobody could agree. So what did they do? Well, Jesus was there because he was already presumed to be guilty. And so in the face of all the good that he did, he has to have somebody to witness against him. There has to be someone to convict him. There has to be something said that would stick against him. But what's going to stick to Teflon Jesus? I mean, he is, he, he is virtue personified. And so the only choice that these religious leaders had, these upholders of justice and integrity, the only way they could condemn him was to hire witnesses against him. And so they worked behind the scenes to get liars to corroborate a testimony that would condemn him to death. Jesus knew all of that. He knew the outcome of this trial. And the chief priests, before it ever started, they knew that they would have to fix this trial in order to convict him. So the sentence would be death. Jesus said, they will condemn me to death. But there's a problem. The Jews don't have any authority to put anyone to death. The Romans had taken that away from them. So he adds another part to his prediction of his death. The third thing is, he said, the Son of Man shall be crucified. Now in verse number 18, Jesus said they'll condemn him to death, but they have no authority to do that. The Romans had taken it away. And so in order for him to die, verse number 20 says that they would deliver him to the Gentiles. And that word delivered, that's an interesting one because the word in the original language means the same thing as what we saw in verse number 18 as the word betrayed. And so Jesus tells them, I will be betrayed by my own countrymen. These are the same ones that Jesus had offered the kingdom to. The same ones that were the lost sheep of the house of Israel that he said, I've come to save you. The same ones that were looking for a Messiah to come to reestablish the throne of David. And here it is right in front of him and them and they betrayed him. They betrayed him. And so they took the only hope that they had and they handed him over to the Romans. And do you know that that was a deed that was repaid some 40 years later? The Romans took their beloved temple, the pinnacle of their worship, and they burned it to the ground. And it happened exactly as Jesus said that it would. In fact, do you remember that this is the blasphemy that they accused Jesus of? Here here is the thing that they brought him up for trial was, what did he say? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he was talking about his body, he was talking about his death, but the Jews thought that he was talking about that temple. He'd made a statement against their temple, destroy the temple. 
And did you know that that misconception actually became prophetic? That Jesus looked at that magnificent temple. He said, there shall not be one stone left standing upon another. And sure enough, you can go to Jerusalem today and there is no temple. But you know what you can see? You can stand beneath the temple mount and you can see where the Romans took the massive stones of that temple and threw them over and they crushed the pavement that's beneath. And you can still see that in Jerusalem today where these stones hit the pavement and crushed it when the Romans destroyed the temple. Now where did that verdict of condemnation lead? Jesus said that he would be crucified. Now, that is the first time that he explicitly said he would be crucified. Now, he did say before that there would be a cross. He did say that, didn't he? But I'm sure that the disciples thought about that metaphorically, taking up your cross and follow him. They looked at it in a metaphorical way. But here specifically, Jesus says he will be crucified. He stated plainly. Now, he's not going to be stoned. That's the method of the Jewish execution. He will not be stoned, but he will be crucified because that is the way of the Romans. That's the way of the Gentiles. And there was nothing that was more contrary to the thoughts of the kingdom and the disciples' minds than Jesus dying at the hands of the Romans. What was he there for? He was there to establish a kingdom. He was there to bring back the glory days of Israel. How is that going to happen if the Romans crucify him? Now, their thoughts can't be this. He can't restore the throne of David and still and be killed by the Romans. But Jesus said that he would be killed, and the ones that they thought that he came to conquer would do it. And not only would he die, but he would die the most humiliating death possible. The cross was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was purposely cruel to strike fear into the hearts of anyone that would dare raise a finger against the authority of Rome. And it did bring them fear, didn't it? We just said that a little while ago. The disciples were amazed and they were afraid because they were completely bewildered why Jesus would dare go to Jerusalem, afraid that they would experience also the death on the cross if the Romans should ever get wind of their plans to overthrow them. But we know that the cross was not the end of the kingdom. It was the beginning of it. The cross was necessary for the kingdom to be fulfilled. And they didn't understand it. To them, the cross was the end. It was the shattering of all of their hopes. It's not the way that you build a kingdom. And isn't that the way that people think? A suffering, dying Savior? That doesn't make sense to people. The Apostle Paul said that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them that are perishing. And yet this is the very thing that all of these disciples would later proclaim. This is the message that they would preach to everyone. It was about the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said, "'Woe is me if I preach not the gospel.'" And then he told us what the gospel is, didn't he? How that Christ died, how that he was buried, and how that he arose from the grave. And where does that all start? It starts with the cross. Nothing in salvation is accomplished without the cross. And that's why Jesus was determined to die. Why is it that people want to go around the cross? I mean, they want to be saved without kneeling at his cross and confessing their sins and repenting of their sins and then trusting Christ. Rather, they want to bypass the cross. They want to go around it. 
I mean, how many people do you know that say they're going to heaven? You say, why are you going to heaven? And they say, because I'm good. I'm good enough to go to heaven. And nobody ever says, no, Christ was good. And because Christ died, that's the reason that we go to heaven. Nobody goes to heaven without the cross. And that's why, maybe you don't want to hear it. Maybe somebody doesn't. But this is why there is no other faith but Jesus Christ and the death of the cross that will get people into heaven. You try to go any other way. You try to go around the cross and you'll end up on a path that leads nowhere but the destruction of hell. Now the cross then is the central focus of Christianity. If you go around the cross, there's only one way to go and that's straight to hell. And Jesus was determined to die. Nothing good will happen without the cross. Now, notice what Jesus said would happen because of his commitment. He says in this text that he would be mocked, he would be scourged, and crucified. What does that amount to? Well, it means suffering. Every conceivable way he suffered. How did Christ suffer? Well, let me give you three ways that Christ suffered. First of all, he suffered mentally. Now, did you know that the mental suffering of Christ began long, long before he actually went to the cross? When he spoke those first words in Scripture at 12 years old, he said, I must be about my father's business. The mental suffering had already started because only the omniscient Son of God could know what he was bound for. He knew the terrible anguish that would come. Now, we'll talk about other aspects of his suffering in just a moment. But the weight of that suffering on him was almost unbearable. And it would have been unbearable if the Holy Spirit hadn't hadn't strengthened him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember that the thoughts of the cross and about what he was going to endure caused him to sweat great drops of blood. And he would have died right there in the garden under that mental pressure if he had not prayed for strength. Now, can you imagine that? Knowing what that pain would be like? Now, you can think about pain, and you might imagine a pain that you would go through, but you don't know it until you actually experience it. But Jesus was God. He knew what that sting would be. You can prepare yourself for pain. Your body actually has built-in sensors that can turn off the sensitivity to pain after a while. You can just blot the pain out. And do you know that you can actually endure nails that are driven into your hands and your feet? It's possible for you to endure that. You know, many times when you see pictures of the crucifixion, that you'll see Jesus nailed to the cross. But then you notice that the thieves often have their arms and their legs tied to the cross. That's not right. No, those thieves were also nailed to the cross. And it wasn't the pain of the nails driven into their hands and their feet that killed people that were on the cross, hardly ever. What killed them most of the time was suffocation because they couldn't get air. But before and during this, Jesus suffered mentally, and he suffered because it was the thought of sin and how repulsed that God would be by it. There's nothing like sin to God. He's perfectly holy. His character has never been smirched by the smallest tincture of evil. But now the perfect Son of God had sin laid on him. The terrible guilt of sin was laid upon him for every person that could be saved. 
And he must bear the weight of that, the mess of it, the stench of it, the pollution of it, the sewage of our sin was placed upon him. And the mental stress that was on Jesus is just unimaginable. And then Jesus suffered physically. Of course he suffered physically. A few years ago in Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, there was probably a pretty good depiction of the physical suffering. And that film was intended to give a picture of what Christ went through physically. Unfortunately, the blasphemy of that film gave it no redeeming value, no pun intended. But they couldn't touch in that film the suffering of Jesus. I mean, they could put in some of the physical stuff. But there were thousands of people that went through the physical stuff. Did you know that when Spartacus was defeated that there were 6,000 slaves that were crucified. The heads of those crucified slaves lined the Appian Way for 120 miles. Many people suffered persecution. And I certainly don't want to demean the value of the physical suffering, but the thieves went through the same. Before Jesus was nailed to the cross, he was scourged. And that scourging alone often killed a prisoner before he could be put on the cross. The flesh was flayed open with a cat of nine tails, one of those whips with many ends, and the tips were had metal attached to them and pieces of bone attached to them, and they beat the prisoner with that. And usually when we see that, we see it depicted as a man standing with his back to the person who's beating him, and his back becomes a bloody mess. But did you also know that they turned the prisoner around and they beat on his chest and on his stomach with that cat of nine tails? And often what happened is the flesh was torn so so much and flayed open so badly that the internal organs would actually hang out. And this is why the Bible says that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition, bloodied and bruised and swollen, his body completely torn apart. And you know something? Jesus knew that. He said, we're going to Jerusalem. And he knew this. Now, I'm afraid that what we have is an antiseptic view of Christ's suffering, that it really wasn't all that bad. I mean, a few hours on the cross, and and we do know many people died that kind of a death. But we have to go back to that mental aspect again. It wasn't a few hours of suffering that he endured. I mean, it was from the time that he was old enough to recognize who he was, that he knew this would happen to him. He was long agonizing over this, and his whole life was a setup for the death of the cross. And each day of his life, it was getting closer, and it was never out of his mind. And so imagine these last few days, and that actual ascent to Jerusalem begins. What must have been going on in his mind as he thought about that pain that he would endure? But the physical suffering, did you know that doesn't garner much attention in the Bible? There's only a few paragraphs that, are, that relate to us the, or give us a description of his suffering. The central event of the history of the world, did you know, only takes up a few paragraphs in the Bible. So the physical is not the worst. In fact, I don't think it was the physical that killed him. Now, from a clinical aspect, it might have been. But I think rather... It's this next type of suffering that actually did the deed that caused Jesus to die. And that is that Jesus suffered spiritually. Now here then is the real culprit in his death. His relationship to the Father was a spiritual 
relationship. He's not a son by natural generation. Now, don't get confused about that. He's called the Son of God, but that is not being by natural generation. As I said earlier in the message, he was alive before he ever reached Bethlehem. He was a spirit that became man. He is a spirit that took on human flesh. Now, the huge issue here is the separation from his father that was caused by sin. Not personal sin, of course, but the sin of others. And that caused the father to turn his back on him. God can't look at sin. And so when Jesus had sin on him, the fellowship with the father was broken. And you know what that did? It broke his heart. The nails didn't kill him. The beating didn't kill him. It's what followed when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there he hung in the agony of the father's rejection. And then finally when he decided and knew that the suffering was enough and that sin had been expiated, then he bowed his head and he said, It's finished. And Jesus let his spirit depart from his body. He surrendered his life. No one took his life from him. He gave his life freely. He suffered and he died for the sins of the world. And when the time was right, his life was gone. And remember the soldier came to check him and he found out that he was already dead. And when he did, he plunged a spear into his side. And the word of God says there was blood and water that flowed out. Why? Because he died of a broken heart. Jesus said, I will be betrayed. I will be condemned. I'll be crucified. But then he added this last. The Son of Man shall be raised. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed under the chief priests and under the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Do you appreciate that Christ was so determined to die that he would go through the physical torment? That he was willing to come and go through the mental anguish for the entire length of his life and that he would endure the spiritual separation from the Heavenly Father? Do you appreciate what Jesus did for unworthy sinners? That he loved us so much that he was willing to do this? a marvelous thing that is what an act of unselfishness what a what an act of humility and self-denial but none of that the death on the cross the suffering and all that he went through none of that would mean anything at all if it weren't for this last promise the son of man shall be raised from the dead and that is so important because that's the validation of the father's acceptance of the payment that christ made for sin Now, can you imagine Jesus telling the disciples that he would die without giving a reassurance of the resurrection? What good is following him if he doesn't have power over life? Will the kingdom be a reality? Not unless the king lives. And they didn't get that part either. I mean, they missed this and they missed so many other things, but they missed it. They were still struggling with all the stuff about being servants and... They overlooked his passion with much consideration, in consideration. They missed the physical suffering. They missed the mental. They missed the, the horrible spiritual suffering. And with insensitivity, they said, 
And what are we going to get? What will we get when the kingdom comes? After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to them. And you know what they asked? Same old thing. This is what they said in Acts 1.6. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, oh, this is when he's ready to ascend to the Father. They asked him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Same old question. I don't know if Jesus ever thought of pulling his hair out, but he missed a lot of good opportunities with these guys. So what's all of this whole thing about? I mean, is it a horrible plan? Was Jerusalem to be avoided? Did Jesus make a huge mistake by going there? Well, not if there will be salvation. And not if the whole purpose of becoming man is to be fulfilled. Jesus must die. He was determined to die. And so he took off to Jerusalem. Luke says that he set his face to go there. He was determined that he would die. And let me add just, uh, as we finish this morning, just a little postscript to your outline, that the Son of Man shall be satisfied. In that great Old Testament passage in Isaiah that speaks of the death of Christ, Isaiah said, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Now, did you know this fact about Jesus, that he had his disciples on his mind when he climbed that 6,000 feet of elevation change between Jericho and Jerusalem? He had his disciples on his mind. But you know someone else he had on his mind? He had every person that would put their faith in him. That he had every one of you that's a believer in him. He had you on his mind when he went to the cross. Did Jesus die for you? Well, if you believe him, you'll know whether he did or not. He saw the suffering of the cross. He saw what he would go through, and he's satisfied. You know why? Because he came to do what he was supposed to do. What did he say? I must be about my father's business. And that's what he did on the cross. He did the father's business. He bore our sins And Isaiah says that by his stripes we are healed. Surely he bore our sorrows. Now the crowds, they were healed from their physical diseases. That was part of the Messiah's work. But the big part, the real big part, the one that's the scarlet thread that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation, all throughout the Bible, the big part is that Jesus heals our sin. That Jesus bridges the gap between man and God. So that on the cross, he had one hand on man, and he had one hand on his heavenly Father. And he brought the two together. That's what the cross is for. Colossians says, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. How are you going to get to heaven? Only by what Jesus did on the cross, by taking your sins away from you so that you can have fellowship with the Heavenly Father. You'll never see God without that. You will never see heaven without having your sins taken away, and Jesus did it on the cross. Faith in the cross is what heals us from our sins. He was determined to die. Thank God that he did, because only by trusting in the blood of of the cross 
can you be saved? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to you and we're at a loss really to say anything further about what happened on the cross and what Jesus came to do. We just thank you that you did come. We thank you that you shed your precious blood that our sins could be taken away from us. This is the love of the Father displayed in a way that no one could ever imagine that it could be done, that God loved us so much that he would send his only begotten Son into the world to die for our sins. How can we not be thankful? How can our hearts not be filled with thankfulness And we think of the suffering and death of the cross that Jesus was willing to bear that we might be able to go to heaven. Lord, speak to someone's heart today. Open up their hearts to the gospel. May your Holy Spirit show them this is the way to find peace with you. Only the cross can do it. Thank you, Lord. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.